Do you ever see someone online or in person and you think to yourself, that's who I want to look like? Look, you know what I'm talking about. For some folks, it's a celebrity. For others, it's a man or woman on social media. You may not always be able to put your finger on it, but at the end of the day, you just want to know more about that person. Well, for many people, that person was my guest this week. I remember first stumbling upon him on internet message boards over 10 years ago, looking at the infamous fit pics and wondering, how do I look like that? Who made his suit? Oh man, imagine if this guy ever opened his own retail store. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is George Wang, founder of Brio Beijing. George and I discuss how his obsession with tailors led him to create his own retail store and the experience he's had working with the Chinese consumer. We also discuss how the Chinese market has been affected by social media and what that means for new retailers. George Wang. <laughs> the George Wang. First off, thank you, thank you for coming on. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the show. Oh, well, dude, yeah. thanks. It's you are like the basically like the game changer for so much of what I you know I don't think there's a, a label for this but like what the rebirth of sort of like menswear and hashtag menswear like years and years ago and we'll talk about this people were getting into clothes and people wanted to get into the best and I think there was maybe one or two people that were actively going out and finding all of these like best makers and you are that person. Maybe there's another one. I think we might know who that other person is, but like, dude, like there's so much of an industry that you influence the influencer who then influenced that. But like, it all kind of started with you. And I will publicly say this, yeah. you're, you're a big deal, man. Well, thank you. Um, I guess I, I wouldn't deny having played a part in all this, but I, I wouldn't say I'm the anything. Like I'm part of... A movement, perhaps. Sure. Uh, maybe I was one of the people that started a little bit earlier than others. Yeah. But you have to remember when I started coming to Italy and discovering, air quote, discovering all these artisans, it was before the time of social media. Right. So there could be also other people doing the same things. You just don't know about it. Well, but there was a form of social right. media because you weren't you were communicating this to a bit because i mean we'll, we'll get into this but like where, where are you from originally did you grow up here or did you grow up i i actually was born in beijing okay and then i left and went to the states when i was uh, i think 11 yeah and sort of grew up there in uh, in the in, in the bay area in san francisco right yeah so how how much time would you spend in each place because you're like you're like really growing up in both places huh yeah, I, I think I, I consider myself more American in terms of my, like how I see things, how mm -hmm. I think about things. Um, so I left the States in 2004. Okay. But I didn't go back to China. I went to Hong Kong and worked there instead. So Hong Kong is kind of like a, a middle ground between the, um, like a more like a Western, Latin, Western lifestyle versus like a very Chinese lifestyle mentality. Mm. So. I also intentionally went to Hong Kong because I thought that maybe eventually I would end up in China and maybe find a career and build a career there. But I didn't want to go back immediately because I, I know that 
I've been in the States for so long that I wouldn't be able to understand China, even, you know, despite being a Chinese and having born there. Like, I missed too much of what happened in the past, you know, 10, 20 years that, that I wasn't there. So I needed a transition and Hong Kong was the perfect place to do it because the way that people conduct business is very much in a kind of traditional Western manner. Oh. I mean, Hong Kong being a, a ex-British colony. Yeah, yeah. But the the business activities that you you engage in mostly has to do with China. Right. Um, so you're dealing with Chinese people and Chinese mentality and Chinese companies all the time, but you're doing things in a more kind of Western organization. So it's it's a little bit easier for me. Yeah. So Hong Kong was a good transition point. And that's kind of where I develop interest in Western tailoring and Western style of dress. Yeah. W- what were you doing at that? Were you in finance at that time? Yeah. It's a, you know kind of like the almost a cliche at this point. I was <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I was in finance. I worked first for an accounting firm and then for an investment bank. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, wait. And you said around then you started to get into like Western tailoring. Yeah. It's to to go back like one step. I think a lot of people don't realize the importance of Hong Kong and China in like pushing Western tailoring because I mean, I remember Cary Grant talks about like how he went to Hong Kong and he got a suit made and he got a suit made like really, really fast. And he was like flabbergasted by the entire experience because the quality was unbelievable. The price was really good. And, you know, for him, he started to actually even, you know, move his stuff out of Britain mm. into going back into that. And a lot of that had to do with the Chinese ability to create like fantastic garments and also like kind of like push that entire thing. I mean, did you get some of your first tailored stuff in Hong Kong or was it, what was that like? I think when I first started to wear tailoring, which is basically immediately after yeah. I got there, because you know, if you work in finance, sure. you, you have to wear a suit. Um, but I was wearing like very cheap suits because I was uh, the most junior you know, guy in the company, right? You don't want to, you know, overdress or be known for how you dress, right? Because right. that's the, the least thing you want to be known for. You want to be known for, you know, your work and and your work ethics and, uh, you know, your achievements, not not how you dress. Yeah. So you know, everyone had to dress very low key because it doesn't matter how senior you are. There's always a a boss above you, and you don't uh, want them to to hate you for the. Or notice you for the wrong reasons, right? right. <laughs> so, you know, in that sense, and, and especially at that time, like, it's nothing like what you see today, right? People dress mostly in very, very dark navy or, or black or dark gray suits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the key words not to stand out, the key word was to, to blend in. Right. To not be noticed. I mean, you could do like small things to, you know, express yourself. Then maybe you can wear a slightly interesting tie or maybe <laughs> okay. striped shirts rather than, you know, solid white shirts. Yeah. Or, or you know, at that time, I think like fancy socks was like a really popular oh, thing, like okay. popularized by Paul Smith and, you know, around that period, I think. Um, but yeah, but mostly... In terms of like color and choice of fabrics, you have to be very conservative, right? Which is um, what pushed me to look at uh, things other than fabrics and colors in order to, you know, have 
uh, a bit more in individuality or personality in, in your clothing choices or tailoring choices. So that forced me to pay attention to fit, to proportions, to silhouettes. Right. So, you know, whenever you work with constraints, that kind of forces you to be more creative. If you have no constraints, you're actually less motivated to be creative. Right. Yeah. Cause you can do anything. Yeah. So, w- yeah, so what you, is you, you can, so you always would go for the easiest things, right? The easiest choice. But if you are constrained from being able to choose the easy way out, then you are forced to, you know, look deeper and, and think more and, and be more thoughtful about your choices. So, you know, at that time, the local options didn't offer the elements that appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So, that's when I started to look at Italian tailoring because I wanted to, I don't like, I don't, I wasn't really a fan of British tailoring or, mm-hmm. or British tailoring as it was presented by the local options at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what led me to uh, Italian tailoring. And at that time, of course, there aren't any Neapolitan tailors who are doing trunk shows in Hong Kong or anywhere yeah. outside of Naples. Because uh, wait, maybe what year Japan, is this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 2005 2006 okay is when i kind of became more serious about it um so at the time whenever i had time off from work i would go to tokyo and oh. i would buy ready to wear italian tailoring from you know the japanese stores right yeah and i think there were like maybe two or three uh internet shops that had some like dead stock ketones and atolini's I think they were on eBay or probably on eBay. Okay. Uh, I, I, I don't know if they're still around, but maybe. I, but I think there are other uh, channels nowadays. So I would occasionally buy from there as well. But it was more risky because it's difficult to judge how it will fit you based on the photographs. Right. Um, so I spent um, you know, more in uh, physical shops in, in, in Tokyo. So that's kind of how I started. And I was introduced to all these uh, Italian brands that wasn't available anywhere else. What were those brands? Like, Do you remember one of the earlier ones? Um, uh, Orazio was one of the earlier ones. Okay. Um, this is in Japan? In Japan. There's another brand called Sartoria Partenopea. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a cheaper version of Orazio, more yes. machine-made. But the lines and the proportions are very much Neapolitan. Um, I had one of those that yeah. I actually bought from <laughs> from a like eBay yeah. online shop. I think it was like it was like four hundred bucks, and it was like yeah, that like was a, like that that price point, right? Yeah. It was like a good price point for someone for like a junior person working in sort of a higher bracket international finance firm in yeah. Hong Kong at the time. You could comfortably oh, afford yeah. to consume at that price point. Yeah, yeah, and I think the one that I had bought. Oh man, I remember it was it was a pink jacket with a huge check, like a massive like kind of like taupe over check to it. I think I wore it like maybe once or twice. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, and I think when we when we start, we all make those choices. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I probably have a closet full of things that I've maybe even never worn because they look good on the in the photo or yeah. when you first see them hanging on, on the hangers and then you kind of imagine, Oh, so maybe in this occasion I'll be able to wear it. And then, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason you buy it. And then that, that occasion that you envision never, 
oh, yeah. happen, right? And yeah. they just kind of get left behind and you move <laughs> on to something else. So yeah. you're in Japan and you're like kind of checking out some of these. What were the other shops that were there? Was it like um, at that time? Stuff, I think Isetan was a Isetan Men's oh, was Isetan, um, yeah. like a one stop destination. You can find everything there. And I think at the time, the Japanese economy was doing much better than it is nowadays. Sure. So the level of quality was higher. Mm-hmm. Um, almost every shop you go to will have some atolini. Oh, wow. Which was the most expensive. I think nowadays it's very rare to find atolini in Japan. So, I mean, if you go like when they're having their kind of sales in July or in, in January, mm-hmm. you can pick up very nice clothes for, um, I wouldn't say cheap, but fair fair price. And, yeah. and the thing is, you know, you, you can't buy anywhere else. So that was really the only option that you have. Yeah, a lot of the Japanese like commerce structure in terms of clothing is there's a lot of exclusivity that's baked in. You know, a lot yeah. of, you know, American brands when they start to sell in japan the stuff that's sold in japan in most cases is only for japan yeah i think they a lot of the products that's available in japan were developed exclusively for the japanese market by the japanese Mm. uh, retailers so even if they were available elsewhere the pattern probably won't fit like a american or or, um or chinese or even koreans i've been running my shop for five years now so i i know that body shapes can be very different right yeah even like we're talking about just asians they can be very different even chinese can be very different from north to south right yeah so i mean those things that are available in 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 japan if they were developed exclusively for the japanese market probably wouldn't fit me very well so the (laughs) ones that i i was able to buy from japan were kind of basically more or less italian patterns oh yeah okay i mean i think they're still a little bit short for me but at the time, I was you know, much younger, so yeah, and, and and shorter jackets was very fashionable at the time. So it, <laughs> it didn't feel very short, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Because uh, but now if I wear it, I mean, I, I can't. It's like, like half short. my ass is hanging off the <laughs> bottom of the jacket, you know? Yeah, yeah. So at the, when did you get on Style Forum? Because I think the first oh. time I fi- oh, like, six? yeah, I yeah. think we got on around the same time. Yeah. But you you can elaborate on this further if you want, but you were one of the few people who were actively starting to try out some of these sort of like Italian brands that people would speak about, but more as lore instead of like visiting there. Yeah. I think that's, that's because I was, I was very fortunate to be very close to Tokyo. I working in Hong Kong. So I had access to all these products that people talk about online because at that time in uh, style form, I think today, even today, is still very U.S. centric, right? Yes. At that time, it was basically ninety nine percent Americans, mm-hmm. probably. Um, so I think maybe you can buy Keaton from Saks Fifth or I don't know, yeah, Bergdorf, but they they weren't really widely available at the time. No. So to have someone who have seen it, have worn it, or you know even tried it, and maybe take a photo and post and. and for people to dissect it, the the images. Oh God! Yeah, that I would. Those. I think that at that at that time was was very interesting for people, right? Yeah, yeah. So, what happened that made you want to go to Italy and start checking these things out? I think I've always wanted to go, but I wasn't able to because you know because of my work I was very busy. Uh, yeah, yeah. As you as you can imagine in that industry. So in two thousand nine, I left Hong Kong, mm-hmm. went back to Beijing. Um, and started working on my own 
uh, running my own business. So that gave me the freedom uh, of managing my schedule. So oh, that's okay. when I started to go. Actually, my first time visiting Italy for the purpose of you know ordering suits was also because I had to go to Germany for a business trip. Oh, so. Yeah, while the rest of my team was in, I forgot, Hamburg, or I flew down to Florence, and I met with uh, Antonio Liverano and placed my first order, I think, in January 2010. Dang. Yeah. Okay, so this is, and I, I think a lot of people didn't really discover Liverano or any of that stuff until, I don't know, like six, five, six years later. Yeah, when they started working with uh, the Armory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, but way before that, they had a like a shop in shop in uh, one of the stores in Tokyo. That's where that's also where I first saw Livrano, and I think Mark had seen it there as well. Mark Cho, and Mark the Cho, Army. yeah, yeah. And then we talked about it before. I mean, like this is way before anyone had any idea to open shops. Yeah, and we were like, oh, you know, it's like mm, very different from the Neapolitan stuff. But I told him at the time I didn't really like it because it felt really boxy. Yeah, but it was. Interesting enough that I wanted to give it a try. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came to Florence and, and booked the appointment with Taka and made my first order. And and then at the, from that point on, I'm committed, right? Because I have to come back for fittings. Yeah, that's because they weren't going to Hong Kong at the time. Yeah. You know, so and then it kind of started to expand, you know, cause since I'm already in Italy, might as well go to Naples right, and, and meet right. some other tailors and to try things out. So when I received my first Liverano, I was extremely pleased. Um, was was Liverano? Was that your first like my first real bespoke? Italian bespoke? Wow! And it just felt and looked like nothing I've worn before. Just for people who um, aren't like familiar with like Liverano cut, like what makes a Liverano suit, Florentine suit, different than what other people are used to? Well, let's just um, let's not call it a florentine suit let's just say it's, sure. a, it's a liverano suit because if you ask other tailors in florence they probably have their own idea of what florentine style is um but liverano suits they tend to have a stronger shoulder okay uh, in terms of like the width is a little bit more extended so i think in general florence tailors like to cut a slightly wider shoulder but a closer sleeve whereas neapolitan tailors is the other way around then the shoulder width tend to be a little bit narrower, but the sleeve is more generous. Okay. So they, I mean, they, I think it achieves the same purpose, but done in almost opposite ways. So the effect is if the sleeve is more closer fitted, mm-hmm. it will give off a cleaner appearance. Whereas Neapolitans, when they cut those generous sleeves, all that material, when it goes into the armhole has to go somewhere right that's why you know sometimes if they do the shirt shoulder you get that wrinkle on top the spala camicia the, yeah. the famous spala camicia yeah. that no one likes anymore yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so that's one thing and then i think that at least for Liverano, they tend to like to place the button stance a little bit higher interesting um so th- the lapel is also looks a little bit shorter because the button is so close to uh, the notch mm-hmm. okay so you get Liverano, and now you're like in you're you're starting to get into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm like addicted. But right? where? And so the thing is, is like obviously you're not like keeping this to yourself. I mean, you were you were kind of communicating and, and even chronicling some of this stuff online initially, right? Yeah, I think there was some um, part of the excitement was the ability to to share with others. Mm-hmm. If you discover something and you don't have anyone to to <laughs> share it with, it's right. 
right? It's like、uh, when you go out to eat, right? It's better to eat with a group of friends, of course, right? Who 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 have some? You know, we can talk about the food, and you know, we we have a similar level of knowledge where we can have a conversation about you know something in more depth. So you know that that form was like this platform for sharing、um, things related to tailoring, right? So you're getting you get into Liverano. Did you did you stay with that, or I mean, because you know you started to go out a bit. Yeah,、right? I started to go further south, and I I've had things made from、uh, you know a few Neapolitan、mm-hmm. tailors as well. And then you know after I opened Brio, I, I had to be even more experimental. So I, I I had things made by British tailors, by Milanese tailors. Well, let's let's jump over to Brio because、okay. you were kind of like the influencer's influencer. You're this. Person who has tried all these tailors. Also, I will totally say that like you really popularized Liverano and a lot of other tailors for people. And then the Armory gets launched. Other stores are getting launched that are in that vein. And then you come in. When did you launch Brio? Two、uh, thousand January two thousand fifteen. Okay. Yeah. And that and Brio is is in Beijing, right? Yeah. So why why then and why there? I have a strong passion about classic menswear.、Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at how many things I've I've bought and I've ordered, <laughs> sure, sure,、right? um, it's easy to to justify that. I was at at an age where I thought this is the time to do something you really like,、mm-hmm. because if you don't do it when you get older, there are going to be other responsibilities that you have to cater to, and you might not have that chance anymore.、Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I was also practical at the time, and I looked at what the market was like in China, and for sure, you know, no one was offering anything close to what we offered when we opened.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do feel that the market have started to take an interest in this type of、uh, style.、Mm-hmm. I mean, suits and Western suits have always been available in China, but people always thought of them as something you wear to work. Yeah, right. Something you wear to some occasions that demands. To blend in, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you're like a, a insurance agent, or something. yeah. But young young people started to look at tailoring as an option in fashion choices. So and and also social media was started to appear and and, and becoming very popular.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I I have the interest. I know people that can make things for me. I I know the brands well enough now. Yeah, you know、uh, what they're capable of. Yeah, I know you know who to buy trousers from, who to buy shirts from.、Um, so I will be able to put together. I will be able to curate a collection、uh, for a shop like Brio. And if I don't do it now, some big retailer, someone who's much more experienced than I am, much more influential than I was, would be will do it, and then I will lose this opportunity. Yeah. So I just thought, well, you know, let's do it.、Uh, where does the name Brio come from? So Brio, it's like,、um, well, I, I I know the phrase from classical music. So it's just like if you say to 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 play something con Brio, it means to play in a certain way. That's you know, bit, bit more with a bit more energy. And、mm-hmm. for me, the word is a is a very masculine word, but it's not so direct.、Um, so I, I think you can interpret it in. You know, not not so in a very specific way,、mm-hmm. and also it's even though it's Italian, it also to English speakers it makes sense, yeah, because people do use the word brio in English、uh, occasionally. 
This episode is brought to you by CDLP. CDLP is a Swedish design company of men's luxury essentials. From underwear, swimwear, and homeware, CDLP makes products crafted with premium, sustainable fabrics, all made in Europe. Look, I never thought I would be obsessed with underwear, but after wearing a pair, I've gone all in. CDLP underwear is made out of Lyocell. Lyocell requires far less water, land, and chemicals to manufacture than cotton, and is a superior and sustainable resource crafted from tree pulp. CDLP underwear is naturally antibacterial and wicks away moisture from the body, all while maintaining both its shape and color, wash after wash. But best of all, CDLP underwear is not only comfortable, but it looks fantastic. Their underwear is inspired by men's tailoring, so there's no cheesy prints or a gimmicky waistband with logos, just pure comfort and a perfect fit. Right now, CDLP is offering Blamo listeners 10% off their order. Just visit cdlp.com and use code BLAMO at checkout. That's cdlp.com and use code BLAMO at checkout and upgrade your drawers. What is it? I mean, the Chinese market for a lot of people, and we don't have to get into like economics here, but what was the, the, the retail scene like in China when you guys are going there? Um, it's very much dominated by big luxury brands. Um, I think even today you could still say the same because... I'd agree with that, yeah. I think if you look at fashion today, it's very much driven by trends that were developed overseas, meaning outside of China. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few, if any, locally kind of organically formed fashion trends so most of that is from overseas so it's almost impossible for local companies to compete uh on a cultural level you know with you know the brands who originates certain styles or certain elements of fashion the the big luxury groups have grown to be behemoths and they have so much marketing power they're able to occupy the most prime real estate for their you know, physical stores, they have the biggest budgets for advertising. So the Chinese consumers, you know, in terms, if you look at how much the proportion of information that they receive, it's going to be heavily skewed towards, you know, the advertising that, that the big brands are putting out. So naturally, when they're making fashion consumption decisions, they're going to be much more influenced by that because if all the magazines are telling them to buy these and you know showing them runway photos you know we are completely invisible to them right right so what's changed i think it's social media because social media made it cheaper and easier to advertise to market right um so you know someone with uh, 10,000 followers and even you know you don't even need to be a so-called you know KOL that's what we call influencers in china right key opinion leaders but even someone like me with 10,000 followers, you know, I could have some penetration into the consumers. So I think social media made it easy for people to get into a market, but at the same time, it has made it more competitive as well. Right. Yeah, because you lowered the barrier of entry. Right. Yeah. So going back to your question, sorry, I kind of went off on... No, that's, that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, so I think still, you know, for the most part... People are driven by luxury brands. I think we we do have a very stable following. They tend to be customers who really who truly understands 
mm. what it means to wear a jacket, what it means to choose a pair of uh, leather dress shoes versus sneakers when you went out. So you launch Brio, and then what happens? And then we, I think we grew uh, in a way that was very surprising to me. I mean, I did research before I, I sure. opened this business, and I, I was hoping maybe we will break even by the end of the fifth year and start start to make some money after that. Which is that's you know a pretty standard and conservative, right? But yeah. I think in the in the first couple of well, the first six months was very painful, right? Okay, there will be many many days, consecutive days where we had no one come in, right? Because we are completely unknown. And I refuse to advertise. Mm. On the day we opened, we had some journalists came over. On that day, we invited maybe five or six uh, fashion media types. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything else was just through our own social media platforms and word of mouth of customers. And so you said the first six months were rough. And right. you, you attribute that to not advertising? I think it's just normal. I think it's just... Yeah, I was going to say, I yeah, think... I think even if we advertised, it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think also you need to wait for the market to kind of catch up to what you're doing. I can understand uh, from a customer's perspective, they wanted to wait and see like, sure. if you're legit or not, right? Yeah, who's this new guy? What are they doing yeah, here? It's like when a, when a restaurant first opens, you want to you know read a few reviews before yeah. you... You, know, yeah. you you make your reservation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. Especially because, yeah. I mean, I remember when you guys open the stuff you guys are offering, like you were saying, it's very different than what the main Chinese consumer is, is used to yeah. and even desires. So in a way, it's it's definitely a bit of an uphill battle for you to explain the quality, the, the romance uh, and, you know, beauty that you guys were offering. Right. So... And, and we didn't really have the the language to talk about it because a lot of the ideas just they didn't exist in the fashion vocabulary interesting in 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 chinese yeah even today we still lack the proper and precise language to talk about what we do really how do you talk about spada kamicha in chinese like you could translate it literally but it wouldn't be as romantic you lose the emotional element of it but and, and if you lose that then you know it that brings the value down quite a bit, right? Because it's, it's not a clothing, it's not a technical thing you can analyze. So much of fashion, I think, is, is about emotion. Right. Right. Wow, that, that's pretty heavy, actually. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. So six months are rough, and then you said the growth was, was more than what you anticipated. Yeah, I think also because we opened January. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, the winter season's already finished, right? Oh, right. For yeah, that, things are for on that, sale. For that, for that time period, People have already bought all their winter clothes. Mm-hmm. And then what's coming is spring, summer, which is in Beijing, which means you get one week of spring and then it's summer, right? <laughs> right. So, and, and we were trying to promote the idea of wearing jackets and, and dress shoes. So we had to wait until fall, winter for things to, to pick up. And it picked up really, really well. Um, I think we broke even by our second year. Wow. Yeah. And and we weren't like charging crazy prices. I think we charge fair prices. Yeah. Um, I always look at retail price, at least for us, as the value of the product plus the premium of our service. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, some customers will appreciate that. Some will think, well, they don't want to pay the premium of the service that they get from us. Then they're more than welcome to go to, to come here and work with tailors directly. Yeah. yeah. And I think now it's much easier compared to when we first opened. What, to work with a tailor directly? Yeah, to work with a tailor directly. Yeah, I, it's interesting because... But there's still, uh, I think, quite a bit of risk associated. Oh, with for sure, yeah. Because <laughs> what I was going to say is like, you know, when people think about margin, I don't think a lot of people understand like what overhead really exists for people. And then even the cost of, I'm sure you have this, but like in, in the States, obviously, you know, there's like duties and all these yep. things that you have to, to pay to just bring it in to sell it. Yeah, the, I mean, the duty in China is very heavy. Um, so first you have to pay, it used to be 16.5% VAT. And then the, the import duty is calculated on top of that. Ooh. And then so plus other kind of shipping costs, you usually end up paying 40 to 45% on top of FOB just to bring the product in. What's FOB? Uh, the, the out of factory costs. Oh, okay. So like the wholesale price. Okay. Right. Um, so, but now I think now it's a little bit lower, uh, than before, but still compared to the rest of the world, the, Import-related costs in China are still probably one of the highest. Wow. Yeah. So now you guys are open this. You break even three years early. Yeah, or two years, two and a half years early. Okay. Yeah, yeah more or less. Yeah. I, I mean, that's pretty epic because I think this is very different than what the customer was used to. Do you attribute some of that growth? Was it, were there like international sales that were happening or was no. this really more from... It was all completely local. I would say even in the first couple of years, we didn't, we didn't even have many customers outside of Beijing. Wow. Uh, I think now we have some, but still it's not a huge percentage. I think the core business is done uh, very much locally. And then you started to do private label too, right? We, we kind of experimented with that. Uh, first of all, almost all of our products have double names. So it's... Double know, names, you mean like co-branded? Yeah, like Daokore for braille mm -hmm. um, because we like to have input in the product mm -hmm. so for example Dalcore the Dalcore jacket that we sell is something that probably have uh, the most uh, input from us um, mm. you know we change quite a bit from their original Neapolitan standard pattern to you know express the, some of our ideas about fit and, and, and style um, so I think that double name is, is earned it's not just something to make make a product seem exclusive. We actually spent time and we sampled different things and we tried different things to get it right. Um, so that double name actually means something. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with trousers. I, uh, there's one Japanese uh, trouser maker that we've been working with. Like we created a complete, completely new pattern. Oh wow! Um, just just for Braille. And I, I think they are, they're now modifying that pattern to sell to other people, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the way. It's <laughs> part of the game. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> the, one of the things that I also want to chat with you about is your own personal style is something that I think, you know, I personally have always wanted to emulate, but also a lot of other people, because I think for myself, you know, and, and the experience that I've had and what I know that people email and listeners will ask me about is a lot of people, they're like trying to find like who they are in the clothing that they, they pick. To me, it at least feels like the stuff that you've had is always been like the right stuff. Or maybe it's like, that's the only stuff that you take photos I of. I think that's, that's just because that's only what I show, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because even like jacket patterns. And so, I mean, the, the question more is like, what was the guidance that you were receiving to do this? Or was it films? What was it? 
not, I mean, I, I don't think I really had a, a guide or yeah. a, lot of, uh, a lot of reference at that time when I first got, got into it. I think I was willing to listen to my tailors. Oh. I think the mistake a lot of new or you know, current customers make is they refuse to listen to the tailor's suggestion because they, their idea of what some things look like is so much formed by the photos they see on Instagram or other you know, social media. Mm. So I think, the, I mean, I think the tailor is, he's like a doctor, right? Like if you go to a hospital... If you're right. sick, you go see a doctor. You're not going to tell the doctor, okay, just prescribe me this medicine and that and let me go, right? I think it's the same thing when you go see a, a tailor, you should listen to that tailor's advice. And at least for the first order, just don't say anything. Just let him do whatever you pay him to do. Yeah. Right? Maybe in the second order and the following orders, you can start to have more input. Okay, well, the first one, you know, I wish the shoulder would would be a little bit wider or maybe a little bit longer or whatever, but don't for the first one, just establish a baseline. Right. Right. You should, you should have done all your homework before you booked the appointment with, the, with this tailor. Interesting. Do not do your homework after you've booked appointments. Like don't go into a tailor, tailor's appointment asking like a million questions. Right. You should have decided like Liverano is your style or, Rubinacci is your style or Dalcole is your style like way before you walked into the door of their tailor shop yeah I, I would agree with that I think some of that has to do unfortunately with what the concept of the person's retail experience was beforehand where it's like I think I think the problem is a lot of uh, consumers today they're not buying tailoring they're collecting tailoring like they're collecting watches Right, they they want to have that Liverano. They want to have that Dalcore. They want to have that you know whatever Savaro suit, or they're collecting, right? Yeah. Well, and to play devil's advocate here, why why is that bad? Um, I guess it's not bad for the the people who are selling these things. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I I truly like for me, I want my customers to understand what they're spending their money on. Like I think. In the long term, if they love what they're wearing that they bought from you, mm-hmm. they're going to come back and buy more. If they're buying something from you just because you're offering this brand that they must have because everyone on Instagram is talking about it or hashtagging it, then they're going to just come in and buy that one thing. Yeah, they're not going to develop a relationship with yeah. you. And, and, and in some instances, they might even take that to someone who's much at lower cost and to make copies of it. Oh, geez. Yeah, that happens a lot in, in China, unfortunately. But I think, like, I feel like part of my code of philosophy or uh, anything else is, is, to, is to create a culture. Like, mm-hmm. people should understand when they put on a jacket, like, you know, like I said, the emotional part of it. Like, if, if I'm feeling like this today, I want to feel like this today, a certain way, I, this is the, the clothes that I would choose to wear. Like, start from yourself first, right? Don't start from the clothes. Right. Right. Don't be a slave to, to fashion, like, as the old saying goes. Yeah. Right. Like, for Braille, it's a lot of people say that Braille is my style. And, well, I think, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not a department store, I'm not a supermarket. 
I'm not there to make things available. I'm there to help my customers dress the way they want to dress according to my aesthetic. Right? I can't I can't satisfy everyone and I can't offer you know so many styles that that there's something for everyone. But I what I could do is offer a set of you know a set of clothes that that I feel is good according to my my understanding, my philosophies. Right. And 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 I want my customers to understand that before they buy it. Really? Yeah, I do. You know, the number one reason I I did this is, is because of my passion, not because I think it's a it's a great business to be in. To to share that passion, to share that understanding, it's very important for me. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think like one of the things that you did too is, I mean, you tried all those tailors first. You were able to kind of figure out like what are the sort of air quote here mistakes that you know you made trying to figure out you know like that that closet full of old stuff that you had to kind of protect you know, maybe other customers and stuff from. Yeah, I think that's important. I think I think um sometimes people understate the importance of a uh, air quote stylist. Yeah. Right. But I mean they have to be a, a good and responsible stylist. They're not just someone there who's like an agent for the the merchant to try to sell you more things. They actually have to approach it from the perspective of the customer. Like what what does the customer need? Right, so and I mean, I always make an effort to, to to ask the customer like like why you're buying some things, like what is it for, right? right? And 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 where do you live? What do you what do you do? Like, the the more information I have, the better I'm able to make the right choice for that customer. Mm. You know, sometimes the customer would just well, you know, they don't like it at all, right? They will go for something else, and I guess that's okay too because I think. People spend money to be happy, not they don't want to spend money to be miserable. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not there to prevent them from buying happiness. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's also better. I think a lot of stores make it's tough. Like they like how much do you want to compromise of the store's values and the store's aesthetic to please the customer? And I think, you know, in most cases you have to compromise a little bit, but if you do so much that you're basically what they walk out with is not anything that you ever really would have sold on your own, it's it's almost a disservice. Yeah, I think the way I compromise in my store is to expand the range. Mm. Like for me maybe uh, let's say 50% of what I sell in the in the store is something that I will wear on a daily basis. But maybe there's a, another Let's say twenty, thirty percent. It's something that I will wear occasionally, mm-hmm. but on a fairly frequent basis. And then maybe the remaining ten, twenty percent is something that like I'm really interested in. Like I could wear it, right? But not every day. Um, but I do want to offer it to my customers. I want to make it available because it kind of fits my overall aesthetic. And I think that's how I you know, like you said, compromise for customers or for the market. Right. But of course, if you want to dress like me, I mean, everything is available at Brio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But don't, don't dress like me. <laughs> so, so what would you, what's next for, for Brio? I mean, is there going to be more? Is it, is it a, just a proof of concept? What, what do you want to do? Um, I want to move on. I, I think I feel that the business model of Select Shop Mm-hmm is at the end of its life cycle. Mm. 
I think brands and makers, producers are selling more directly to consumers nowadays. And social media has taken over the function of um, retailers as the curator. Interesting. Um, now you can follow a very well-dressed guy on Instagram. Yep. And basically he can be the curator for you, right? You can just look at what he's wearing and then seek out the brands or you know the makers of, of that and buy it directly from them. But now I think more about maybe not compromising, maybe having a tighter range that's really 100% of what I wear. Right. Right. Uh, on most days. And, you know, making everything at the same quality that we've been making. But because it's such a tight range, it's it's even more my style than before. Mm-hmm. I would just brand it under my own name. So, I mean, as basically moving from like a third-party retail store to an omni-channel store where it's, it's all private label, it's all you and your brand. Yeah, I, I think that's that's uh, that's correct. But I don't want to call it. I don't want to call it a brand. Mm. It's just a, you know, like this is a place where you can buy these things. I think sometimes when like five different neatwear makers, okay, they are trying to compete for the same customers. Sure, but they all make the same shit. Yeah, it's exactly the same. They use the same yarn. They use the same machines to make it. Their designs are very similar so in that case what would you say makes them different but exactly but they all try to stand out they try they all try to make themselves appear better than the competition but they're the same but so i but how I do agree. i how do i make yeah because i think that you know for for me yeah. and my answer is the brand yeah and in, in the sense that the brand is look i mean we we look at uh watches or jeans or any of that you know, any sort of like clothing or jewelry, that stuff, for me, I'm buying the brand over the product. I will wholeheartedly admit it. I, there's a, a part of myself that I want to align with that brand. Yeah. And in a way, even with like what you were doing, you know, to connect this back to Style Forum and stuff, like I wanted to look like George or, you know, your screen name at that time of like, because, you know, our body type is a little bit the same in terms of our shoulders. And I was like, oh man, if he can look like that in tailoring, then I can do that. And for me, I was like, I want to, you know, buy the, you know, the George Wang brand over something else, even though it might be the exact same thing. So I would say it, maybe it's a better idea for you to have it as a brand versus some good stuff that you like. I I think the way I think about it is, I, I want to be able to communicate to customers the thought process of creating the product. Mm. For example, if we are making, if we're trying to sell a jacket, I want to be able to explain how we design the silhouette. Okay. Like what, what feeling is it going to, or we hope that it will evoke for, for you when you wear it. Mm-hmm. Um, why we chose to make it out of this fabric. People should talk more about the thought process behind the choices that they make. Like it's 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 what drive people to make suits from with tailors instead of buying them off rack. They people crave that kind of personal connection. And the more we talk about what we do instead of trying to hide it like it's some trade secret that I don't want anyone to find out. I would love to talk more about why we're doing certain things. 
in that case, which I agree, because I think there's, you and I are talking about two different types of, of what a brand is. There's mm-hmm. the old style into which we don't reveal anything, but a newer brand or the type of brand that maybe you and I want to associate ourselves with. Yes, we want luxury, but you also want to know how that brand works. Like what is, yeah, why did they make that decision? Why, you know, are, are they being a ethically and socially responsible brand? Like, you know, but now I think you and I, like, I care about that. I want to know what else am I saying when I'm wearing that brand? And it's, it sounds like, you know, you could be that for a lot of other people. I think, like I said, I, I wanted part of the reason I will open Brio is is to help build the culture. Mm-hmm. I want this market to have this understanding of what these things are all about, and they they will form the foundation of a culture of understanding of this kind of for us Chinese a very foreign style. Mm. Um, so the next time that that they buy a suit, they're not just buying because oh you're having a wedding, so the occasion dictates that you need to wear a suit. I want them to buy a suit, not because the occasion is important, but because, well, you know, they wanted to look a certain way for their wedding. You know, it's more uh, how how to express yourself through clothing. Right. I think presenting the heritage is important, but at the end of the day, the customer is more, you know, moved by the emotional side of things. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's still something that I'm trying to figure out how to, how to do. So don't, don't look for a, a huge change in, in what we're doing very soon, but that, that is the direction that I want to move towards. Oh, I mean, that's cool. I mean, I love being, you know, inside your head for a bit and trying to figure this out. I mean, it's, it's definitely exciting. There it's, you go. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, George, this was awesome. It was really, really good to chat with you. Thanks so much, man. Thank you for having me. All right. See ya. All right. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Blamo is edited by Brendan Finn, and our intern is Connor Vaughn. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Want to know more about what's going on in fashion or menswear or just meet other folks? Join our Slack group. It's a private chat group online where tons of Blamo listeners chat about everything. Just send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. See you next week.